Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS. I am your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Please remember, if you like this show, give it a five-star rating and leave us a review. This helps us get these stories out to more people. Today, I am here with Corey Markon, Industry Manager with Endris and Hauser. So, Corey, who is Endris and Hauser and what do you do for them as an industry manager? Um, yes. So first of all, thank you for having me on, on the show here. I'm excited for uh, raising awareness in the energy transition. So Anderson Hauser is a global process automation company. We're Swiss-based, privately held. We manufacture process instrumentation. So everything from a flow meter to a pressure transmitter uh, to some analytical equipment like pH or P and conductivity, but also more complex measurements like moisture and gas or uh, compositional measurements, for example. We have several large manufacturing campuses uh, in the U.S. Um, so that's in Indianapolis, Houston, Ann Arbor, a few locations in California, and we serve multiple industries. So things like oil and gas, life sciences, food and beverage, chemical, uh, wastewater, uh, and of course, power and energy. My role is the industry manager for the last one there, power and energy. So with that, are there, I guess there would be industry managers for each of those major industries. And how does, how does your role differ from theirs? Sure, yeah, so I'm focused on our strategy, uh, our company strategy, you know, three to five year planning on uh, what we're doing to serve our customers in the power and energy space. So I'm excited to talk to someone who's interested in low carbon solutions, obviously because the energy transition is taking some precedence in what that strategy is uh, to keep Anderson Hauser um, solving some of the world's biggest problems. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. it has become a very, very prevalent topic, the energy transition. And, and it is something that is that is very big in, in the energy industry. Now, now let's take a step back and I guess who, who are you on, on LinkedIn? You describe yourself as a pragmatic environmentalist. And I'm just curious, how did you, what in your environmentalist background took you to end up here at this company? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, condensed version of the origin story. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, so I've been in the business for about a decade and have experience with all forms of energy. Started my career in renewables, uh, thinking that solar and wind could run the world. 
Uh, I was very hopeful. I had, you know, studied at McGill University in Montreal and took environmental science. And my plan was always to get into green energy, even a, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, so after a few years, I realized that there were some limitations. I spent some time in the Caribbean, which uh, is where the best economics in the world are for solar in particular, right? You've got very high cost of electricity because everything's imported. They literally bring diesel in from Trinidad to these other small island developing states to burn it for power. So they've got a lot of sun and a high cost of electricity. And very quickly, I saw that the grids weren't allowing any more solar because of the intermittency. So that kind of moderated my view on how much solar and wind we could have on the grid. And here we are a decade later having some of these conversations now where certain regions in the U.S. have overbuilt solar and need to do something with it that's productive rather than just putting it in the ground when you don't need it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very interesting point and it's something that that we don't talk about enough is is the intermittency aspect. And I I think that's what you were referring to when you said limitations. That was a word I caught on because it it really is a it's this it's this conversation that we have decarbonization, but then there's another step further of deep decarbonization. And it's 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 that extra deep decarbonization that is hard to get to, especially with with intermittent renewable energy. So I'm I'm curious how how did you go from from seeing those limitations and, and working on on solar power and, and renewables to to your position here at Endress and Hauser? Sure. Well, <laughs> some of it is by chance. I sold solar panels uh, to a guy that owned a company that was working uh, with one of the major turbine OEMs. Um, so got offered a job. And at that point, I was open to that possibility to work on different types of energy because I saw gas as a really interesting and compelling argument um, against coal. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe the first energy transition, right, away from coal to natural gas. And that company had um, a partnership with Anderson Hauser. So I was always adjacent to E&H and our, and our products. Have you ever seen the, it's kind of a documentary movie style thing called Switch? Something that Scott Tinker, he he was the main guy and it was basically asking this question, when and how are we going to switch switch our power grid with the idea of decarbonization? It was it was kind of before its time. It was it was a I guess it was about ten years ago now the first one came out. And his his conclusion and Scott Tinker's at the at the Bureau of Economic Geology down in Austin. He he made this conclusion that natural gas was was going to be the first thing we switched to because it is a lower lower carbon emission power compared to coal and compared to something like diesel and that's great that that's that's what you saw too 
That's what we see. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for interruption, but I wanted to bring up a few quick things for September. First, our happy hour. If you don't know this, our happy hours are usually last Thursday of each month here in Houston, unless there's a holiday, and this month is no different. It's going to be Thursday, September 30th at the Canon. Our happy hours are much more than a social event. Our happy hours include a learning component, very strong networking, food and drinks, and then most importantly, the money that we raise goes to fight human sex trafficking. So by you showing up at our happy hours and participating, you're helping us fund the fight. So thank you. Then we have a new show, our Low Carbon Solutions show. It is awesome. Uh, it's very pro-oil and gas. At the same time, we're also exploring low-carbon solutions. And if you don't know this, besides the podcast you're listening to right now, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. You can find them all at OGGN.com or any place that you download and listen to podcasts. Then finally, if you want to do something different, if you want to play a role with us here at OGGN, maybe have a little bit of fun, join the OGGN Street Team on LinkedIn. Just go search for OGGN street team sign up it's completely free to you it's our all-volunteer group doing really cool stuff such as reading pro oil and gas books to elementary school kids yes you heard me right we are helping educate our world's young people on the pros of oil and gas on the advantages of the fact that hydrocarbons are the most uh, valuable molecule to mankind we're doing that why don't you come help us with that and if you don't want to help us with that maybe you can help us with our social media or being a part of our press team or 101 other things but we can't do anything unless you sign up at LinkedIn so go do it right now hopefully this was not too much of an interruption I will see you again next month So that that's a really interesting interesting idea switching from coal to natural gas. Although most people aren't really aren't really thinking about that today. Today we're talking about about kind of beyond natural gas. So I guess what what would be your your take on that? I think it sounds like you would have a an interesting take. Sure, yeah. So Maybe switch as a concept is not like the right metaphor or analogy for what's happened. It's always really been a transition. And a lot of coal plants in the U.S. are in the process of being retired or already retired. It still makes up a good chunk of our energy mix. But that's on its way out. Gas was really on its way in. And then actually some of it was slowed down by the advent of solar uh, becoming cheap at scale, uh, same with wind. So this idea of a switch implies some sort of like binary off on uh, from one to another, um, but it's always been gradual. Uh, and that's really what's made me this pragmatic environmentalist is we have to take incremental steps. So what a lot of people are talking about now is hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And I see it as this elegant compromise where you can reuse the gas turbine infrastructure, right? You don't have to build another gas turbine. You can just decarbonize the one that you have uh, with some modifications uh, in order to blend hydrogen, right? So in that case too, we're, we're talking more about uh, a path towards decarbonization instead of a switch to decarbonization. Mm -hmm. Yep. That, 
that's a really elegant way to put it. And I think that's a very, as you, as you say yourself, it is a pragmatic way to go about it. Not just trying to, trying to go from one to the other, but a gradual change. So, so I'm a geologist. I am subsurface. I deal with rocks all the time and I understand the idea of blending, but can you talk about that a little bit more? Like what, what is this, what is, is natural gas blending? Sure. Yeah. So there's a few different applications. The one where I'd consider myself a subject matter expert on or some form of that is really with respect to gas turbine applications. So typically you'll have like a large power station that may be like a gigawatt and a few gas turbines and some steam turbines uh, to capture waste heat. It's called combined cycle power plants. And those power blocks are currently pretty much 100% natural gas, which is typically plus 90% methane. Then there's some other heavier hydrocarbons mixed in. What we're suggesting with blending in this case, right, the context of the energy transition is to inject hydrogen, uh, which will burn clean uh, into that stream in order to just lower the emissions. So, for example, if you take 25% hydrogen by volume relative to the natural gas that you would be burning, you know, you're going to end up saving about 5% um, by mass of CO2 emissions. A quick tangent with something like putting in the hydrogen, is this, are these calculations assuming blue hydrogen? Yeah. So no, this is a great uh, common misconception. Now that we're talking about different colors of hydrogen, the gas turbine doesn't care where it comes from. It will burn clean regardless. The one thing is, you know, the way that you produce hydrogen, there are various ways to do that. Uh, typically it's done with uh, a process called steam methane reformation. So SMR for short. And we are calling that now gray hydrogen because you take natural gas and you crack it in order to get hydrogen. You steam to crack it. And then that uh, hydrogen is you know, typically used for refineries or, you know, enhanced oil recovery or some other application, semiconductors, for example. And the CO2 that's created as a byproduct is just vented in the atmosphere, right? It's an emission. Blue hydrogen is capturing that CO2. Now there's another form of hydrogen called green hydrogen that is using water and electricity as your feedstock. So if we were to jump back in the conversation a little bit here on the you know, overbuilt uh, capacity that we have for renewables, let's say in places like California, you can take that excess energy and just pump it into an electrolyzer and make hydrogen. And that hydrogen can be stored indefinitely. And therefore you can use that kind of zero carbon fuel that was a derivative of that extra solar energy and eventually burn it in a gas turbine on demand. So that solves kind of the intermittency problem mm -hmm. of solar. 
So what you're saying, thank you for for explaining the colors of hydrogen, the hydrogen rainbow, if you will. There's pink, there's turquoise, there's yellow. We we can save those for another time. (laughs) But what you're saying is that just blending in hydrogen drops the greenhouse gas emissions from the turbine. Yes, and presumably you wouldn't be using gray hydrogen because that would defeat the point, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have a, let's call it, ethically sourced hydrogen yep okay <laughs> uh to burn in the gas turbine yep okay so that is that is one one option for blending is blending in in hydrogen are there other are there other fuel sources that you could blend in with natural gas in order to to drop the greenhouse gas emissions sure yeah um, ammonia is one methanol there there are other types of uh, hydrogen carriers if you will, uh, that are not hydrocarbons. Uh, so in theory, yes, you could. Now, the use case for, let's call them green fuels like green ammonia, uh, are still developing. Um, it's easier to liquefy ammonia, so therefore it's easier to conceive of a world where instead of shipping LNG around the world as your you know, lower carbon fuel relative to oil, you're shipping ammonia around the world as your zero carbon fuel relative to LNG. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The so I used to have a, a diesel truck and I liked I liked the idea of biodiesel. And this is this is probably as close as I come to understanding blending, but the biodiesel had higher it basically it had higher waxes in it and would end up clogging up your fuel lines in your engine. So that was a problem using one of these non non-traditional fuel sources. So I'm I'm curious as you are blending, what kind of what kind of problems occur? Sure, yeah. So in most modern heavy frame gas turbines, right? The ones that have uh, technology to reduce their emissions, you do run into some issues uh, once you're up at that 50% range by volume, of course, of hydrogen mixed with natural gas. Uh, I don't want to get too far into the to the weeds, but effectively, the flame temperature at the fuel nozzle goes way up uh, because the flame path. Uh, you can think of it as like the geometry of the flame changes once you have a rich uh, amount of hydrogen in that stream and you could melt your fuel nozzles and that's basically because you you've changed the chemical makeup and now it's burning hotter right is what you're saying is that i guess is that the only problem are there other problems that can happen there are some, and I'd encourage listeners, if they're interested, to do some some kind of DIY research around this topic. There's some really interesting webinars out there from some of these major turbine OEMs that have uh, released some pretty cool information uh, just doing feasibility testing on their own products. Um, so I'll, I'll reserve those <laughs> details uh, for those that are more interested. Okay. But it sounds like, if I understand what you're saying, 
the main the main goal here is is not hitting those problems and and blending properly so to speak so what would i guess trying to bring it back to Endress and Hauser is what do you guys provide to in this blending space sure yeah so in this case we're more of a solutions provider a technology provider than what i would classify as a you know simple instrumentation company um, we understand the applications and we do have some really cool proprietary technology that uses uh, ramen based analysis um, so it's if, for listeners out there it, it it's basically like a fast gas chromatograph is the quick definition, um, but it uses light and it scatters uh, this this laser beam in a gas stream and the peaks of uh, absorption vary quite distinctly between each of the particles, whether it's the diatomic atoms like O2 or N2 or in this case H2 uh, from other you know hydrocarbons like you know methane. And, and propane. So our technology allows for uh, these OEMs uh, to control, uh, to kind of throttle that injection rate of hydrogen into the stream um, at a you know parts per million uh, level of control in a matter of seconds instead of you know minutes. And when you're talking about safety and uh, wanting to reduce emissions as much as possible, our technology can help uh, our customers get to the to the edge of that safety margin. So help me understand this. You you're measuring the the molecular makeup of of the gas going into the turbine. Why would an OEM one of these turbine operators not just monitor the temperature at the like at the failure point why would they not just run that to it's like to the breaking point and then back off a little bit sure so there's a lot of different ways to control a turbine uh you can do like a feed forward approach or a feedback approach so you can in the example that you're describing it would be feedback directly at the fuel nozzle which means that if you're reading those temperatures it's maybe too late <laughs> so mm -hmm. if you're going to do uh, like a feedback control you do need speed right and ramen technology offers you speed but you also need uh, to take that measurement with some reasonable safety margin relative to the kind of let's call it overhead the system overhead meaning time required to make those adjustments away from you know the potential catastrophe okay that makes sense so i'm i'm curious we've we've talked about kind of how how blending works how you can get reductions and how this ramen technology can can monitor and optimize the blending. So overall, what kind of what kind of um, 
what kind of real world examples of carbon emissions reductions are you guys seeing with with people implementing this highly optimized efficient blending sure actually so we're in new territory uh the some of the projects that are coming out now are the first of its kind so there's a lot of demonstration projects there's a lot of pilot projects some of which we're involved on i won't mention any by name of course uh but you know we're testing our our devices in the field and actually currently in the factory that we're you know very close to right now and uh we, we see really fast performance, you know, under 15 seconds a response time of our uh, technology to, you know, understand the composition of a gas, a sample stream. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really, I guess that's, that's great to think about, especially going back to the an earlier part of the conversation talking about switch talking about switching to natural gas that was that was kind of seen as the the obvious the low-hanging fruit to to decarbonize and and we also talked about the idea of deep decarbonization whereas here we we really are we're taking the low-hanging fruit switching from coal to natural gas and now we are we're striking we're we're implementing these technologies and these solutions to further that natural gas reduction in carbon. So I'm, I'm curious with, with the idea, did you have anything on that? I just started, that was an idea that I threw out there. Didn't give you a chance to talk. No, that's please. I'm curious your next question. I, I was going to completely switch it up and talk about the idea of, of getting to a 100% hydrogen or, or some type of, of truly, uh, net zero feedstock for the gas. How do we switch? Yeah. Like how do we actually get to that point? So I've got some kind of napkin calculations here that I'll go through because it's, ah. uh, it's, it's interesting, right? So right now in the U.S., we produce 10 million metric tons of hydrogen. Most of that is from gray hydrogen sources like the SMR. Of that, only 40% is for sale, meaning only 40% of that hydrogen would ever leave the production facility in which it's being made. So it's being used right there at the production facility. Most of the hydrogen, Most yeah, the it. other 60%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so only 40% of it will ever be sold to the open market for you know other industrial uses. If you take all 10 million megatons, that's only 45 gas turbines running at 100% hydrogen. So our current domestic production of hydrogen total would only be enough hydrogen and this is i'm talking on an annual basis of course it would only be enough hydrogen for 45 gas turbines and how many how many turbines do we have right now in the u.s so we have about 1900 plants some of them may have one two or three units so you know estimate 2500 
So a drop in the bucket. So that's, that's what, 0.2%? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, it's a, so there's that aspect, the actual feedstock. And, and as you were saying, there are issues with actually running the turbines. That's why there's blending. Is that, is that something that, that there's people thinking about right now? Or is it, or is that just like, we first need to actually figure out the fuel source. I'm of a mind that we need to make the production of hydrogen as cheap as possible. The production of low carbon in intensity hydrogen. There are two schools of thought, you know, some people saying that blue hydrogen will always be uh, the cheapest, lowest cost uh, or lowest carbon hydrogen, but you know, there's also a very compelling use case around electrolyzers specifically because of the feedstocks are electricity and water instead of just more natural gas and mm. steam. So yeah. we got to solve that first, the production, because we already have 1900 plants that could consume all of the hydrogen we'll ever make. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I think that is, it's a good way to look at it because right now we, and really the natural gas is, and those turbines are becoming the, the larger part of the, of the energy makeup. So why not work on decarbonizing those first through blending and then if we can figure out how we get an excess of hydrogen, like we have an excess of solar and wind at certain times, then, then we can start thinking about how do we actually create the, 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 the tools to burn the hydrogen cleanly and safely. So I don't, I don't know if I have any other questions. Is there anything else that, I mean, I do have some other questions, but not, not hydrogen related. What, is there anything else that, that you have written down during this conversation that you want to talk about? No, I, I think I covered most of it. Uh, just to give maybe a little bit more factoids, right, about the green hydrogen uh, ramp that's happening right now, just to give kind of the audience a, a bit of context as to how quickly things are starting to pick up, uh, specifically with green hydrogen, right, building electrolyzer plants. Mm -hmm. A 20 megawatt electrolyzer could produce about 3,000 tons of hydrogen a year. Right now, 20 megawatts is almost double what we currently have installed in the U.S. And we've got, I think, maybe five or six projects already announced up and down the southeast and northeast corridor, uh, all 20 megawatt plants. So right off the bat, we're talking about 6x uh, the, the current capacity, it, just in the U.S. alone hmm. and just in the eastern side of the U.S. Okay. There's a project out west called IPP Renewed. The LADWP is working with 
um, some other, you know, major turbine OEMs. And I, you know, please Google, that's a really interesting uh, project, IPP Renewed, uh, where they're going to have 100 megawatts of electrolyzers. So you can see that we're order of magnitude growing uh, in terms of announced and funded projects in the green hydrogen space. So I'm curious, what what are they using as their energy source? Excess solar and wind in the in the region. So they're building an electrolyzer that can intake 20 megawatts of electricity. Is that am I understanding that correctly? And then it is creating hydrogen at that time. Yes. So the 3000 tons is that assuming running 24 seven or is that their projections based on capacity factor based on a capacity factor that's that's published by cummings okay yeah okay that is that's interesting and especially as we as you think about so me being in mostly in geothermal that's my focus and that is something that that we think about and and we think about stranded resources the same as in in oil and gas there there are places that just don't have electricity or they they have a resource but no electricity to produce that resource or the resource is there and just no demand so the idea is finding a way to to turn that source into something that can be transported and can be valued. And one project that is up in up in uh, in Canada called Meager Creek, they just announced, and it, it's a process or a project that's been in the works for a while. They just found a new new backers, and their main focus is going to be producing hydrogen using the excess power because it's a very it's a it's a fairly large resource but it's just a small community that actually needs electricity and i think that's a these kind of ideas of of finding excess green energy and turning it into a a movable resource is is very important really thinking about the the entire full system life cycle of the process and of, of the energy infrastructure. Right. A lot of times we think about some of the world's problems in terms of scarcity, right? That's what they mm -hmm. teach you in economics. Everything is about scarcity. Mm -hmm. Whereas with renewables and creating an infrastructure that uh, kind of couples sectors together, or puts these resources together in a way that um, you know, solves a weakness of one another, then you, you have abundance. Mm -hmm. And with abundance comes an entirely new kind of economic model around, you know, how you resource plan. Yep. So with the, with the blending, this was something that, that has come up in, in previous podcasts, the idea of the value of the energy or the value of the product as you're blending, have you guys seen a, an interest? Well, let me rephrase that. 
what is the what are the main goals of your clients in this in utilizing these technologies and and applying applying blending in their in their turbines sure yeah so a lot of it's driven by ESGs if you're familiar with that term environmental social governance standards so some sustainability initiative of either the folks funding the project um, or you know and kind of new energy bend to some maybe traditional energy folks and some of it is honestly narrative driven i mean you have new gas turbine plants you know there's there's a a story i like to talk about where you have two in uh in virginia one is planning to blend hydrogen as part of their their approval process their publishing you know that they intend to blend hydrogen and the other isn't and guess which one has dropped out of the race probably the one who's not blending hydrogen exactly so now at this point if you are not publishing an intent to become green or a path to decarbonization you're seen as a as a dinosaur or a less valuable project or you're going to have difficulty getting funding because some of the biggest financial institutions in the world, like BlackRock, right? They're not going to invest in anything unless it's green. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that it's, it's not necessarily a clear laid out plan, but just a, a intent and a, a initiative to blend. Well, the, the infrastructure to create, uh, you know, the capability of blending in these modern gas turbines is actually pretty simple. Hmm. It's, you know, not much more than the skid that you would pipe the hydrogen supply up to and some sort of analyzer, like our ramen-based analyzer, hmm. to control that blend. And, of course, some feasibility studies from, you know, whoever's, gas fuel system it is to make sure that you know the material will will be compatible with hmm. with the amount of hydrogen that they're blending but it isn't exuberant to have blending capabilities so therefore it isn't uh, a big hurdle uh, for these companies to include that in their in their um, kind of value proposition to their investors hmm. so what about retrofitting existing turbines it sounds like it's easy to do it from the onset and is it easy to do it after the fact yeah and that's why you know we're developing a solution for this market where we're consolidating uh, as much as we can of what that hydrogen system needs to be into a single solution uh, that's you know under eight feet by four feet so that it can fit in the existing infrastructure. Now, the supply of hydrogen, that's another, that's another topic. Those uh, electrolyzer plants can take up quite a bit of space, although they're doing a really good job scaling up. So with that, is it a... With a... Um with forward thinking, could you imagine a 
an electrolyzer plant coupled with a turbine genset plant to produce its own hydrogen? Or do you expect a kind of a hydrogen to start being piped around like natural gas? So it's interesting you say that we're still in a learning phase, but I believe, this is my personal belief, that gas turbines will start to couple, as you've described it, uh, with electrolyzers from the jump, or in some cases, add electrolyzers to the existing infrastructure. They already have cooling water. They already have the electrical switch gear. You can benefit, you can get that economy of scale on the utility side. Mm-hmm. So like the stuff that's around the electrolyzer, the core technology mm-hmm. that enables that, uh, yeah, that, that enables the, the, um, the coupling of that exactly. infrastructure. Yeah. The utility scale of it. Yep. I'd be curious. I don't, I don't know if you'll have an answer, but from a, from a thermodynamics perspective, something like the steam turbine that's taking the waste heat compared to a, a, I guess the, maybe the SMR would, would match with that, except you would be some type of steam generated electrolyzer. Well, so, and you bring up a good point, right? So, so you're talking two different types of technologies, the SMR, right? You've got, uh, you use steam. Mm-hmm. So you could, in theory, couple with a gas turbine, used its waste heat, heat a boiler, use that steam uh, for SMR. You're absolutely correct. And even more interesting for the green hydrogen side, you actually produce heat. So you can use that waste heat and put it into that heat recovery steam generator uh, to, again, increase the efficiency, uh, the thermal efficiency on the back end when you're, when you're making steam. Mm-hmm. So it could work. It could work either way, and you know I'm not uh, a systems engineer uh, in in with enough context to to your point the thermodynamics yeah. of it which, all. Which of those is more efficient and would ultimately would ultimately win out from a thermodynamics perspective? That's that's the question. Yeah, and the of course the dirty little secret of green hydrogen is water use. So you actually use a lot less water for SMR per unit of hydrogen hmm. than uh, green hydrogen. Yeah, so. yeah. I need to I need to get a guest who is working on some type of coupled desalination green hydrogen project. That people talk about it. It's on LinkedIn. It's out there. It's it's an idea, but it is one of those that again economy of scale how much energy usage you you have in there is it does it end up being economic and really that's that's the the trick with a lot of these is that it always comes down to economics at this time right at at this time and under this economic model so let's look at california the cost of water could rise mm. over time it could rise asymptotically if mm-hmm. uh, you know climate change continues to uh, you know lengthen droughts, mm-hmm. and desalination may be the answer uh, to their water crisis, and solar uh, and continuing to build solar and, and putting it on every roof you can can create the abundance necessary 
Hmm. And guess what? When the, you have the wet season and you don't need that water for your people, you can use it for your hydrogen. Yeah. So it's, again, it's changing our, mod, our mindset a little bit to not think in terms of scarcity, but try to set up an environment in which we have abundance. And mm-hmm. what do we do with that balance sheet? Yep. Yeah, it's a really interesting thought, thinking about it in terms of, of abundance, which ironically is the opposite of, of what, what you guys are working on right now with the blending of hydrogen because there is definitely a scarcity of hydrogen to go into natural gas. The so I I I, I do want to ask this question with the with these companies, do they I guess the companies working on this blending, do they see beyond the ESG, is there is there a economic higher value of the blended um the blended feedstock mixture? Sure, yeah. So over time, the price of, for example, green hydrogen will be competitive with natural gas in certain markets where you have to import natural gas, for example. In the U.S., that is going to happen a lot later unless there are kind of, say, bottom-up pressure and top-down pressure. So... Bottom up would be production tax credit for hydrogen, just like there's a production tax credit for wind, mm-hmm. right? So that'll get us up in terms of the revenue that you could get for hydrogen to subsidize the price of hydrogen to the market. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the top down, which would be a carbon tax, which frankly is pretty bipartisan at this point. <laughs> The idea yes. of using that as a mechanism, because uh, it's proven uh, in other places, like even Canada as a good carbon tax, um, to be effective at re- resetting the economics a little bit around uh, what technologies uh, will adopt to over time. Hmm. Yeah, because that's something that that is definitely a part of this conversation in terms of, of what is that value because when we talk about energy density, nothing compares to, well, hydrocarbons are, are very energy dense and it is very difficult to, to match anything to those. And I think that's the, but when we talk about all of the subsidiary values of something like hydrogen, something like geothermal, even wind and solar, these are there are these other values that something like a carbon tax accounts for in in some ways and there are other other thoughts out there on how to account for it but it's a it's an interesting problem that we we don't really have a full handle on yet So with that, I've got a, a few quick questions. Unless you have anything else you want to say before I ask these. Nope, all set. What's the most important book you've ever read? I'd say Project Drawdown. It's a comprehensive list 
of everything we need to do as a society towards mitigating climate change. So out of seven episodes, that's already been mentioned twice. <laughs> I will I will be curious to keep keep tabs on how often Project Drawdown makes it on here. Next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Never. Ooh. Shots fired. You're you're gonna have to elaborate <laughs> at least a little bit there. I think it's gonna be a difficult problem to get people who use gas already, natural gas in their homes, to adopt hydrogen. It's a little more leaky, a little more explosive. Mm. There's just going to be a bigger battle there than I think uh, people realize. Hmm. So you're, I guess this, this brings up some other questions. You're pretty, pretty gung-ho on hydrogen being the answer for natural gas. Yes, although I don't discount the possibility of SMR, the other SMR, small modular reactors, tiny nuclear, as I like to call it, eclipsing natural gas. Hmm. So at any point, if we can find another reliable baseload energy, then maybe natural gas turbines go away. And yeah, maybe we can electrify everything in everyone's houses and therefore get to a a net zero uh net zero is the is is you know the key distinction between net zero and 24 7 renewables i guess i mean we'll never get to 24 7 renewables but let's say net zero by uh 2075 okay yeah and i think that's another thing that nobody's really talked about the the net zero versus the 24 7 renewables that's a it is a, a very important distinction. And, and I think net zero conceptually is possible. 24-7 renewables is, is much more difficult to, to even conceptualize. And for me, the way I've explained hydrogen to my friends is... It's really the only answer to the last 15% mm -hmm. of our industrial economy. Yep, that's a, that's a really good point. So now the last question, do you have any questions for me? So far, what do you think the winning renewable technology is? The winning renewable technology. I mean, it, so I will, I'm going to answer this in a very long answer. The, there will not be a winning renewable technology. Geothermal is by far the, the best renewable technology. It is firm. It's flexible. It is everywhere as long as you drill deep enough and can figure out how to produce that energy. So that is kind of. I think geothermal, once we figure out all the things necessary, is going to be, is going to be the, it's going to be the foundation of 
of the grid. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have solar and we shouldn't have wind because there are locations where those work. If we can figure out things like decommissioning solar and wind, if we can figure out how to get all of the resources we need from the ground in a, in a green way, those, those have, there's plenty of solar and wind energy out there that should be incorporated. And as well as transportation, we need to figure out how to get, we need to figure out how to get everything we need for the batteries, the lithium, the cobalt, or, and then we need to figure out storage if, if we're going to put storage as a major component into the grid. So all that being said, I really think the, the home run is going to be, is going to be distributed electricity on a smart grid. So we're going to have to have very good, uh, it security. We're going to need to have buy-in from everybody to either have solar panels or utilize the existing oil and gas infrastructure to convert wells to geothermal. We're going to need, and we're going to need everybody communicating on this smart grid. So that way we can distribute the, the power where it's needed, when it's needed. As you point out, the idea of net zero, your first answer was never. <laughs> and like this is a, even talking about smart grid technology is, is completely changing the grid that we have today. So it's a very, whenever we talk about net zero, I think it's a very lofty goal. And it's always going to be until we get there or until we have major buy-in. And I guess that's that's the winning the winning renewable energy is the human mind. I think that's what I concluded in my answer. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, where where can the audience find you and where can they find more about Endris and Hauser? Sure. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Corey Marcon. That's C-O-R-Y, no E, M-A-R-C-O-N. And you can find us at Endress, E-N-D-R-E-S-S dot com. Well, Corey, thank you for joining us on the show today. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit or visit us at OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, I encourage you to check out the Canon co-working space. This is, the, this is where we host our monthly happy hours and where I work when I'm in Houston. Mention OGGN for a free day pass. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.